Our scripture reading before our sermon this morning is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And it reads, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All right, good morning, everyone. Um, my apologies for, uh, for the PowerPoint stuff. I, I tend to use Google Slides and sometimes it just doesn't always work the way I'm expecting, so I'll go through them as normal, but I'll, I'll try and just vocalize what's going on just in case something doesn't um, show up on the screen properly, but not a big deal, we'll get through it. We have a, a few of our number who are out at PTP right now and we are obviously thankful for that work in Sevierville and we pray for their safe return. Um, it really is just great to be among you once again. So I'm praying that this study will be helpful for all of us this morning. Everything can be taken away from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedom, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. That's a quote from Viktor Frankl. He was a Jewish Holocaust survivor that studied neurology, psychiatry, psychology, um, he, he founded this concept, though, of logotherapy, which is completely centered on one's individual search for meaning in their lives. And so by his view, every choice that a human being makes drives them closer to their individual meaning. I'm not going to sit here and claim that Franco was correct in his conclusions all the way, but I do think he understood this well, that in our own search for meaning, whatever that looks like, human beings have a lot of choices to make. Some are small, like what cereal will I eat for breakfast or what am I going to do after work? Those things are small and ultimately inconsequential. Uh, but there are bigger decisions that we make, those being of our, moral of our moral choices. Will I get angry at this person and lash out at them or will I stay calm? Will I lie to and cheat on my spouse or will I be faithful? Uh, there are numerous choices like this that we have to face in our day-to-day -day life. And though many of our religious and non-religious neighbors would argue against this, choice is a natural and central component of our humanity. If we look in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we begin this idea that we do indeed have choices. Parents, anytime you tell your kids to go clean their room, to take out the trash or otherwise, you recognize that when you tell them to do that, even though you are giving a command, a directive for them to obey, you recognize still that there's a choice that the child has, right? The, the, the child still has a choice of whether they will actually do what's being asked of them or not. Just because there's a command in place, that doesn't mean that they will choose to follow that command. And there may be consequences for disobeying that, but we, we understand that within 
commands, there are nonetheless these implicit choices that we have, right? Within every command, there is a choice that we are ultimately given. That is certainly the case in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, and especially in that 17th verse, God tells Adam, don't eat of the forbidden fruit, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So again, there's a command, but there's still an acknowledgement of a choice, an acknowledgement of the consequences of the wrong choice. God could have created Adam with the inability to choose, but he didn't do that. Why? Our ability to choose is, number one, part of what makes us in the image of God, but in addition, it's essential that we choose him. It's essential that we, that we choose to love him, that we choose to serve him, that we choose to follow him. He doesn't want the obedience of robots. He wants the obedience of people who wanted to obey him. Think even to Joshua 24, verses 14 through 15. This is when Joshua is renewing the covenant vows of Israel. And he mentions in verse 14 that there's a choice in what attitude they will serve God with. With sincerity and faithfulness, Joshua tells them to serve him. And then in verse 15, we see, choose you this day whom you will serve. And to paraphrase it, your idols or the true God. What are you going to serve in reality? There is a choice that's given to these people of who they will serve. Note also, this is in spite of their prior choices. It seems like at certain points, especially in the book of Exodus, one of their leaders can't turn around for five seconds without there being a golden calf or something of the like. And yet, despite all of that, they are still presented the choice in this, in this moment to start making new and better choices. It's never too late to start making the right decisions, right? But how about John 8 and verse 34? Jesus says plainly that truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Romans 6, 16 reiterates that in saying that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, whether it be righteousness or unrighteousness, sin or obedience to God, there's a choice that you have. It could be said that we only become slaves to sin if we clothe ourselves in its shackles. Nowhere is it affirmed in the scriptures that we are slaves to sin outside of those of our own choices. What's my point here? Why am I bringing all of this up? Every person has the ability to choose what they will do with their lives. That is how God created us. But among all of these choices, there's one that matters most. We must choose whether we will obey Jesus Christ or not. We must choose whether we will follow Jesus Christ or not. We must respond to the question of what we will do with Jesus and his teachings. In that image in Matthew 27, 22, we find Pilate being faced with that exact thing and instead of doing the right thing and setting Jesus free, knowing that he was innocent, he goes with the crowd. We have the choice in a similar light of what we will do with Jesus, whether we will follow him or whether we will disregard him, treat him as nothing. There are ultimately two ways that people will respond to Jesus, and it really is one of these two. It's true that there is some nuance in some of this, but ultimately when we stand before God in judgment, these two options, these two choices are going to be what matter most. 
Did we accept Jesus or did we reject him? God will either say something along the lines of, well done, good and faithful servant, or he'll say something like, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Whatever is chosen, it's something among those two. No matter the exact reasoning, that person will be told one of these two things. And we are all going to be brought to, um, to be judged by him in this manner. From God's perspective, there isn't a middle ground here. From God's perspective, there isn't a third option. I think that's something we need to realize. There are certainly reasons that are complicated for why people reject Jesus. We're gonna be talking about that tonight. But in regards to this decision, there's nothing, there's nothing in the middle of this. It's one or the other. This lesson is primarily for those of us who want to accept Jesus. We may desire to accept him, and we may think we already have accepted Jesus, but we need to make sure that we are literally and figuratively on the same page with him. We need to make sure that we're all in one accord with Christ in what he teaches, what he believes. Belief in Christ requires belief in what he says. It's so easy to go to John 3.16 and to say that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But what about John 3.36, where it tells us that if we believe, we will have eternal life, but if we do not obey him, that same promise isn't extended. It's, it's belief and obedience, a belief so strong in Jesus Christ that I obey him, that I believe in his authority over my own life, that I believe in his lordship over my own life. That's what we mean by a holistic idea of belief in Jesus. In order to know what you will do with Jesus, there are three questions you must answer this morning. There are three questions you must answer if you wish to accept Jesus. Number one, do you accept Jesus' identity? Do you accept who he is? Number two, do you accept Jesus' priorities? What Jesus finds the most important, do you agree with him? Are you on the same page with him? And number three, do you accept Jesus' beliefs? Do you accept what Jesus teaches? Or are you going to try and find your own way? Let's start with this first question of do you accept Jesus' identity. Once again, um, if I messed up anything in the formatting on this and scripture references are on top of each other, I apologize, but I'll, I'll, I'll read them out and we'll, we'll get through it. But do you accept Jesus' identity? Do you accept who he is? There are three things, three things I wanna point out here. Number one, it's true that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. We look in John chapter 10 in verse 30, Jesus makes this statement that he and the Father are one. And we can tell from verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. At many points, people ask, well, this isn't a clear, direct claim of divinity, right? Well, with the Jews' reaction, I think it's pretty clear what he was saying. The Jews don't just pick up stones to throw them at anyone. We have to understand that their reaction told us everything we need to know about what exactly was said in this passage. For Jesus to say that he is one with the Father is to imply that he is on the same status as the Father, that he is the same being as God. He is God. Let's even look in Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 20, and we're gonna run through these, but there are, I think, five clear claims of divinity that we find here, or, or rather, four clear claims of divinity that we find here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, verse 15. What does that tell us? He's the complete image bearer of God. 
Jesus is the complete image bearer of God. In John 14 and verse nine, Jesus says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's made clear that knowing God is only possible through knowing Christ. He is the complete image bearer of God. Look in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 16 shows he's the creator of the world. That is a claim that only, that only God can make. Paul tells us that for Jesus to have been the creator means that he is God. It's unmistakable. Look in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the holder of creation. He, he keeps it all maintained. Once again, that's only something that God can do. Look in verse 18. He's the founder and leader of the church we find here. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the founder and leader of the church. In verses 19 through 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. For anyone who says that Jesus is not God or that he never claims to be God, why does he constantly say that he's going to bring people to himself? There is no prophet that we find in the Old Testament who ever says he's going to bring people to himself because that would be blasphemous for him to say. There's not even an apostle that says he's going to bring people to himself because that would be blasphemous for them to say. Only God has the right to bring people to himself. Only God has the right to claim that he will bring other people to himself. We know that Jesus Christ is God. Number two, we recognize that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. In Matthew 14 and verse 33, this is, after, this is after Peter's tried to walk on the water and he failed, but Jesus was doing it just flawlessly, this amazing, miraculous work. And what do they say? They say, truly, this is the Son of God. This is a distinct title. This is something that is, that is completely set apart, a title that only Jesus can have. It is true that there's a sense in which we are children of God, we are sons of God, but not in this way. This is something much more distinct, something much more powerful. Even in Luke chapter one and verse 35, when the Holy Spirit is, is, when the Holy Spirit is making it clear um, and when the angel is telling Mary of what's going to happen in this child that she's going to bear, in Luke one and verse 35, it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the Holy Spirit will make this clear, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Once again, a distinct title that is only given to Jesus, and for good reason, he's distinct from all of us. He is the Son of God. But what about Jesus as the sinless lamb? What about Jesus as the sinless lamb? We know from Hebrews 4 and verse 15 that he was tempted in all ways as we are, and yet without sin. It wouldn't matter that Jesus was sinless if he had never been tempted. Maybe we've never thought of it that way, but the fact that he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, it just goes to show that he overcame these temptations that we often fail against. 
Jesus is the sinless lamb because he proved that he was the sinless lamb. There was an opportunity for him to sin and he never took it. There were temptations that he had and he never succumbed to them. That's the God that we serve. In 1 Peter 1, 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, the blood that he shed was the pure, blameless blood that could never be given from an animal. Hebrews talks about repeatedly the fact that animal sacrifices just aren't enough. Their blood isn't enough to purify for once for all time the sins of an entire people. But Jesus' blood is sufficient to cleanse the blood of the, of the past, present, and future, the sins of the past, present, and future. It's sufficient to cleanse the sins of the whole world. And all we need to do is to trust him enough to obey him and to follow what he says. He's the sinless lamb. Number two, do you accept Jesus' priorities? There are some things that Jesus found as the most important parts of his ministry, and sometimes in this life, we get distracted. We try and find all these new goals, these new priorities that maybe aren't his. I'm certainly not saying that it's wrong to have a hobby or to have an outside job, but ultimately, what were Jesus' priorities? And would I say that mine are similar? His first biggest priority was serving the Father, was serving the Father. In Luke 2 and verse 49, Jesus has been, has been gone and Mary and Joseph are worried to death as any parents would be and they go to try and find him and he's, he's in the temple. And, and when in verse 49 they ask, why were, in verse 48 rather, they say, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. What does he say in verse 49? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And Jesus is ultimately submissive. He goes home with them. But it shows serving the Father was his top priority. There was nothing more important to him than to serve the Father. Look even in John 4 and verse 34. This is after he has spoken to the Samaritan woman. And it says that the disciples were off searching for food. They're hungry. It makes sense. But, but what does Jesus tell them in John 4 and verse 34? He says that his food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus' food was to do what the Father had commanded him to do. Serving the Father was his priority. But what else? We find also that his priorities are to serve and to help his friends and family. And maybe it should be made clear that I don't mean this in the way you might be thinking. It is certainly true that Jesus had the utmost respect for his mother and father. It is certainly true that Jesus had, had, had brothers and sisters that he loved. It, it's 100% true that he had family that he wanted to take care of. I'm not trying to, to remove that or to say that because of what we're going to talk about now, that that is completely unimportant. But let's be very clear in saying this. Our earthly family comes second. It does. That's not a claim that I'm making up. That's not something that I'm trying to just say to be a contrarian. That's the truth from Scripture. In Matthew 12 and verse 49, Jesus says, Here are my mother and my brothers. In verse 50, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He wasn't trying to poke fun at his actual family, at his earthly family, but he was saying that the spiritual family is of, 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 is of so much more importance 
I'm thankful for those of us who have had families that have, that have loved us and taken care of us and have been there for us. I, I am so thankful for that. But if I ever begin to think to myself for a moment that, that, that those relationships are more important than the covenant relationships made by Christ's blood, may I just be so bold to say we've made an idol. Perhaps we've misunderstood and we've gotten to the point where we, where we put something above the church and that just should not be the case. John 15 and verse 14 even, you are my friends if you do as I command you. Certainly we all have friends. Many of our friends might not even be members of the body of Christ and we're trying to help them with that. But let's never confuse it. Let's never think for a second that we can claim to care about our friends and family and that be our most important thing while we refuse to put certain groups in their places to remember that the church is of the utmost priority. Helping his friends and family, his spiritual friends and family, was one of Jesus' great priorities. What about this third one, though, and perhaps the one that's both the most famous and the most important? Seeking and saving the lost. Everything that Jesus' ministry led up to was him bleeding and dying on the cross for our sins and allowing us the opportunity, the right to become children of God, John 1 says. His number one goal was seeking and saving the lost. It's said that way in Luke 19 and verse 10, but in John 3, 16 through 17, what is it that's said there? It does indeed say that God so loved the world that whoever, that who, that, that, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I'm trying to, to paraphrase some of this, but in verse 17, what does it say? Our, the, the main point that I want to make here, what does that say? that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, right? Seeking and saving the lost, this was the ultimate goal of Jesus Christ. Do you accept Jesus' priorities? Because if it doesn't look like these three, maybe we haven't. But finally, do you accept Jesus' beliefs? And there are three points to this here. Do you accept Jesus' beliefs, first of all, about God? Do you accept Jesus' beliefs about God? Number one, he wants all people to know him. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4 makes that clear, that God desires for all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, the same thing, saying that he desires for all to come to repentance, that he's being patient with all of us so that we could know him better, that we could love him better. He wants all people to know who he is. Do you accept that? Do you accept also that being a good person is not enough to know him? This is not to make us all feel terrible about ourselves, but it's just to put things into perspective. In Mark 10 and verse 18, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and, and asks him, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher. And what does Jesus say? Why do you call me good? No, it is good except God alone. Now, is Jesus saying there that he's not good? No, he's, this, is a, this is a rhetorical strategy, really. He's calling the ruler to realize that if he's saying this and these works that he's doing, the teachings that he's giving, these are of a, of a completely different realm than anything that I've ever seen before. He must be saying that he is good and therefore he is God. He must be implying that. But it's possible that the rich young ruler might have missed the point there. In Romans 3.23, pastors, many of us know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And once again, we talked early on here about choices, and much of that is because of this verse that I knew we were gonna come to this. We need to recognize that the choices that we make are sometimes choices to sin. Our choices can be good or bad choices, but what does James 1 tell us? Does it tell us that we are led astray by others' desires? I mentioned this on Wednesday, and I will reiterate it here. It says we are led astray, or or rather enticed, by our own desires. No one else's. We cannot look at anyone else and say, that's why I'm tempted. That's why I'm sinning. And we we especially can't point at God and say that. Being a good person isn't enough to know him, because truly without Christ, none of us are good. But let's take this one step further. Being a religious person isn't enough to know him. This point is hard, but let's really investigate the words of Jesus in Matthew. In chapter three, verses eight through nine, he, um, John the Baptist is speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees that have come forward, and they take so much pride in Abraham being their father. They take so much pride in that. And they're thinking, well, do you know who we are? We're, we're, we're Jews. We're, we're children of Abraham. You know our father Abraham? But what does John say to them in verse 9? He, he essentially tells them, your status as religious people doesn't mean anything. God could cause these stones to be children of Abraham if he willed. It is only by his will that you get to make this claim that you can make. What John the Baptist tells them to recognize is, don't think so highly of yourself. Don't think so highly of yourself just because of who you are or how religious you may think you are. The truth of the matter is, we all fall short when we are comparing ourselves to Jesus the righteous. Now, I do want to read this. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. This will be a big point in the lesson tonight as well. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Did we not live our lives trying to glorify you, God? Verse 23 is heartbreaking. He declares to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Imagine being told by Jesus, not only do I not know you, we've never met. And this is to people, perhaps among our number, people of the body of Christ who have believed they've been serving their whole lives in service to God and maybe our lives don't, don't add up well with it. And maybe it is those in, the, in, other, in other sincere bodies of, of, of worship that think they are worshiping God or think they are living right before God, but in all reality are not. Being a religious person is not enough to know him. Any idea that says, well, all churches were going to the same place, that is simply not what Jesus said. Anyone who says, well, all religions, you know, all of these gods are ultimately pointing to the same one. We're all just getting there in different ways. That is not biblical. It's not biblical. It's not enough to know him. Do you accept Jesus' beliefs about the church then? Do you accept his beliefs about the church? First of all, do you believe that the church are those who are saved in Christ? 
Do you believe that it's those who are saved in Christ? Acts 20 and verse 28 makes plain that, that the church was bought by Jesus' blood, that he died for the sake of the church, for those people who were saved. What about Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What are you talking about, Paul? What are you talking about? What, what kingdom of your beloved son are you talking about? It's something that's under your authority, surely, but what are you talking about? Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. His kingdom, his church, these are all, these are all truly synonymous terms showing these are the people who are saved in God, in Christ. The church com is comprised of the saved in Christ, but it's also under the authority of Christ. It's under the authority of Christ. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus says, on the rock of my being the Christ, on the rock of your confession, Peter, I will build my church, his church, no one else's. No human can place his name on it. It's Jesus' church. There's one. I find it so interesting that Matthew places the transfiguration event right after a lot of this. In chapter 17, it, it, he, they go up to a mountain, Peter, James, John, and Jesus, they go up, and Jesus' body is transfigured, his glory is visible, and we find that Moses and Elijah appear. And so what does, what does Peter do in verse four? I mean, I feel like the reaction is pretty reasonable for someone who's never experienced this before. He says, let's build three tents. This is great that we're all here. Let's do one for Moses over here, let's do one for Elijah over here, and one for you, Jesus, this will be great. But Jesus says, through what happens here, that's not the case. And what God tells them is, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, verse seven. It's interesting that in Deuteronomy, when we find the picture of this new prophet that's going to come after Moses, similar wording is used, right? It is to him you will listen, he says. And what does verse eight of Matthew 17 say? That when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus only. Romans 15 and verse four shows us that the old law was indeed written for our instruction, but if we miss the clear symbolism in Matthew 17 showing that the authority of that old law is not binding onto us, we've missed it. We've missed it, brothers. What does it say in, in chapter 28 and verse 18? That all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so, of course, in Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, the authority of Christ is there simply restated, reaffirmed. It, it's very obvious that those in the body of Christ, those who are members of his church, are under his authority, the authority of the new covenant under Christ. And that church is responsible for keeping, the, for keeping the doctrine of Christ. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, he's, Paul is recognizing all the things that have been done by the foundation Jesus laid, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, right? And he talks about the, the prophets and apostles being brought to, to deliver this revelation that in John 16, we're told these apostles are going to deliver for, for these people onward. In chapter 4, 11 through 14, the same is reiterated, but verse 14 shows the purpose, and this is how I know it's about revelation here. 
about what's revealed from God, it says that the purpose of this is so that we are not carried along, that we're not, that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The purpose of the apostolic work, the purpose of what we have in these words of Scripture is so that we're not led astray. Uh, friends, if we say for a moment that we can't understand the will of God, well, I, I would pray that we can. Seems pretty imperative that we do. In 2 John, especially verse 9, it makes clear that whoever does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. And certainly there, contextually, it's speaking to the fact that Jesus is holy God and holy man. It's true. But contextually, we have to also recognize the big picture. We have to recognize that if, that if it's important for us to know who Jesus was, it's important for us to know what he taught. It doesn't matter what I know about a person if I don't know what they believed and what they taught, right? We have to keep the doctrine of Christ if we are to be God's people. And finally, do you accept Jesus' beliefs about the future? Do you believe the fact that he will return? The fact that he will return. John 14, this is right after the, they've been told, yeah, Peter, you're gonna deny me three times. Judas is gonna betray, is gonna betray me. But what he says in verses one through, through three is meant to comfort he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's going somewhere, but he's coming back. In Hebrews 9.28, it's said that when he comes back, he's not coming to take care of sin. He did that already. He's coming for the judgment this time. What about the fact that he will judge? He will judge. Do, do we accept Jesus' beliefs about that? In John 5.22-23, it says that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Look at what he says here. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In Acts 17 and verse 31, it said that God has appointed a day on which Jesus will judge every person, the living and the dead. It's going to be a universal, impartial judgment, a final judgment. He will judge. And he will deliver. He will deliver. Number one, his faithful to heaven. Second Timothy 4.18, Paul mentions that as he's talking about the fact that he feels alone right now, that, that people have deserted him, people have left him behind. He says, I'm not really alone because God's with me. And he's going to deliver me from this, from this trouble that I'm in, from all these problems that I'm facing. He's gonna let me come be with him. That's the promise for the faithful. But what about the faithless? What about the faithless? Revelation 21, verse eight. Yes, I get that there, are, there can be songs about it, there can be jokes made about it, I get it, but this is serious as well. The faithless do not have the promise that Paul was given. They have the opposite. They're being told that where they're going to go, somewhere where God is not present to comfort them, to take care of them. It's a place where there will be what we find from Jesus' words, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth the faithless don't have a positive future to look, up, to look forward to. 
this is the most important choice of your life. And I know it's very, it's very easy to think like, well, yeah, you're preaching, of course you would say that, yes, but just disregard the disillusionment then and just think, Anyone who is up here, anyone who sits with you and makes a decision with you about a house, your future, whatever is going on, this is the most important choice you will make in your entire life. Nothing else matters. Do we recognize that? There are so many problems that encompass our world today, whether it be these issues with, um, issues with culture, issues with economy, whatever is happening, but our choice to believe what we will about those things does not even hold a candle to the choice we make in what to believe about Jesus. And if we think it's even on the same pedestal, we've missed it. We've missed it, friends. In Deuteronomy 13, this is where we'll be for our conclusion and our invitation. Moses is giving one last charge. One last charge to the Israelites. He has seen them do all of these crazy things. It's become almost like a Saturday morning sitcom in a way, just how much the Israelites mess up and how much they turn their backs away from God. But he tells them what will happen if they obey. He tells them what will happen if they don't obey and what he tells them, knowing that the way of truth, the way of God is the way of life. He says in verse 19 of Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore choose life. Those are three of the most important words you will ever read in all of the Bible. You know your options. You know the terms and conditions. You've checked the box. Now choose life. This really is the most important choice you'll ever make. If you're here this morning and maybe for a long time you've thought that you've followed Jesus faithfully but you're realizing maybe there are some things that you and Jesus haven't seen eye to eye on, please let us help you, let us study with you. We, we want to do what we can to help. If you're here and you're realizing that your relationship with Jesus hasn't even started yet, we know there are many needs, people who may just be in need of prayer, people in need of comfort. If there is a single need that you have that you would like to come forward and talk with us about publicly, please come forward now as we stand and sing.